Uh, one of the things that um, we have always spoken about each and every year is the importance of keeping the story and the uh, events, the accounts of the Holocaust alive as survivors continue to pass away. And this has become our responsibility. Um, one of the people who has been outspoken on this issue is our guest this morning, and that's Leon Goldenberg, our good friend, who has uh, his own family history and story when it comes to World War II, and in addition can speak uh, to every aspect of our community about the importance, and to every part of our community about the importance of remembering the Shoah and passing on these uh, messages and tales to the next generation and then the next generation. Leon Goldenberg, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you for having me once more. I appreciate you being here, and today is a, uh, a little bit of a different day. In, instead of speaking about some of the current, uh, present uh, causes that are happening in the Jewish world, instead of um, motivating people to take action uh, when it comes to uh, the world of politics or other things that are happening in our community, today is a day where we're asking people to remember. We're asking people to, uh, uh, to keep memories alive from just a few decades ago, because soon uh, the survivors are all going to be gone. You have your own family story uh, that is quite a poignant one, and really one of, one, one could say one of miracles, right? There's no question about it. There's no question that every survivor, if you talk to them and you will ask them, they will tell you clearly, at this point, there's no question that God saved me. I heard a... a I went to visit a cousin of mine who's actually in Poland right now. Yeah. She's 90 years old. Her name is Gisela Sikowitz, or Gitu Sikowitz as we know her. Um, she actually went, invited her, one of her closest friends, Brunia Brandman from New York, from Borough Park, to join her. Also she, around 90 years old? She's a youngster, 86. <laughs> 86 years old, yeah. Right. Um, she went with the friends of the uh, IDF. Right, FIDF. FIDF. And she's really going there to speak to them. She actually went, she told me, it must have been very interesting, on an Air Force jet with high-ranking officers. And from it, Israel. From Israel. And if you saw, they brought the first Sefer Torah that came to the Kotel, which just must have been 50 years ago. It must have been also an amazing sight, especially Shavuos, when, when 200,000 Jews marched in that was the culmination because that was again going to be another Holocaust. But let's get back to the Holocaust. Yeah. She she just told me some of the stories. She was on a movie, and one of the one of the parts of the movie was they asked four people people that were from before and stayed from people that were not from and became from, and people that were uh, religious and became non-religious, and people that were non-religious and stayed non-religious. So she said the one that was not religious told the story how she was hiding and running in, in Poland, and she was on a roof somewhere. She tripped, and she looked down. It was a Sefer Torah. The Sefer Torah, she's not a, a religious woman at all, and she picked up the Sefer Torah, and she carried w it with her throughout the entire war. And she said that Sefer Torah saved her life. Very strange stories, but everybody, everybody can tell you. My mother... Uh, who was uh, nifter a year and a half ago. When she came into Auschwitz, she had a young sister, 12 years old, that she was crazy about. And when they walked in, my oldest aunt, who just passed away a few months ago, uh, Fagel Epovitz, who had a bunch of write-ups in, uh, in Hamodia, she, 
So when they came This is your mother's oldest sister? Oldest sister, right, right. If you came to pay a shiva call and you went downstairs, uh, she was sitting downstairs. She couldn't come upstairs. Uh, but she passed away at 101 and three quarters. <laughs> uh, fully, you know, uh, her mind was fully with her. But when my mother came in, she had, my aunt had been married before the war, so she came earlier. And my mother and three sisters came in with my mother, with my grandmother. And the other two sisters were older, like my mother. They were from 20 to 30 years old, the four sisters later on. But the youngest one was 12 years old. And when my mother walked in, she was holding the hand of this younger sister because this was her Liebling. How old was your mother at the time? My mother uh, was 28. Wow. And of the two oldest sisters, the two other sisters, mm -hmm. were sent to the right to live. And my mother, of course, she was holding on to the hand of, of her sister, who's holding on to her mother, or as my grandmother, mm -hmm. were sent to the left. And a Polish Jew comes over to my mother, and he says, You stupid Hungarian girl. Don't you understand? She didn't. Why would she? He'd been there already for years. He knew what was going on. And he grabbed her, and she said, with anger, and he flew her the other way. And she was so angry, you tore me away from my little sister, my little shepherd. How could you tear me away? You tore me away from my mother. It was only later that she realized that she never knew who he was, that he saved her life. He saved her life by flipping her the other way. And uh, one of the sisters got typhus, and somehow she healed. It's an unbelievable thing how she could have healed in, in, in this kind of an environment. Did three sisters survive? Four. Four sisters survived. Right. The one that uh, fired at was the oldest, and they were known as the Fier Schwestes in, in Auschwitz and later on. And uh, uh, they, were, they, they were older, they were between 20 and, and 30. And the barracks that they went in had about 35 to 40 young girls, 14, 15, 16 years old. And one of them who my, I just had a granddaughter named after my mother and aunt, Chaya Fager. And this woman's name had to be Chaya Fego also. <laughs> and she was a young girl, and she told, told us, uh, as a matter of fact, the family made a, a video. Uh, she just passed away also. And she told us that when she was in the bunk, everybody thinks everybody got bread and soup. Not everybody got bread. Only the people in front of the line got bread. My oldest aunt, who had come earlier, was in the front of the line, and she got a slice of bread. The other three sisters didn't. So she took the slice of bread and she cut it into four. And the four sisters survived on one slice of bread and the soup that they got. And this woman said that she was, she was actually a very thin woman when she passed away. She said, I was skinnier then, it's hard to imagine. And she said, I wasn't getting the bread and I couldn't survive. And I collapsed in the bunk. And your mother picked me up, and she carried me to the bunk, and she hid me. It was hard, it, hard to imagine. I was so skinny that they were able to put me by the barracks and throw a blanket over me to look like nobody was there. And that one slice of bread that the four sisters were sharing, they gave me until I recovered. Hmm. And she said that the four sisters watched. They were the mother hens for these 35, 40 young girls 
when they left Auschwitz and when they went to Nuremberg to Siemens to work, you know, at a nice, uh, high, uh, uh, you know, very well-known place, mm-hmm. um, which was in Munich, and they were pretty much all went together, and she watched them there also, and she said, the bombs started to fall one day. And there were two incredible stories. The bombs started to fall, and she was scared. She was young. She was very scared, and she saw my aunt, and she ran to my aunt, and when my aunt hugged her, she knew that she would survive the bombing and she would survive the war. And this aunt over there, believe it or not, in, in Nuremberg, they treated him a little better because they wanted him to work on the munitions. So they put a drop of meat into the soup. Mm. So my aunt, as Feigelevich, refused to eat the soup. She subsisted on the bread, on the slice of bread that she was getting. She refused to eat the soup. My other aunt, who is uh, still alive, uh, Irene Rosenschein, Yitta Rosenschein, I uh, went to pay a call. Uh, she's out in Colorado, and she said, it's hard for us to really understand, but when it came Pesach, and she kept track of the days, my aunt, she said she was not going to eat hummus. So she was not eating the soup, and she was not going to eat the bread. But it seemed that this aunt Yitta was a, uh, she was a beautiful woman, and she used her beauty to get her wiles. And she managed to get a coat, and she cut out the pockets of the coat. And at different times, she would go near the kitchen, and she would pick up a turnip here and a turnip there, and she would throw it into the coat. And they had two reasons uh, that they also went, they would pick up the Peels from the beets. Mm. Because my aunt taught the girls not to eat those peels, but to rub them into your cheeks so you have some color. Leon Goldenberg's here at Telmashtoha. Two things I must ask you. The first is, uh, as we speak about remembrance and passing on this message, would you consider your mother to be a survivor who spoke about these things? My mother was... From the beginning? No, from my, let me just finish this. So my aunt subsisted on these turnips at the other aunt, and that's what she had on Pesach. My mother, my father never spoke. My father had a a wife and five children. Nobody survived. No one survived. And therefore, and my mother used to tell me years later, they used to wake up every single night screaming the names of his children. We never saw that. We, know, we just saw a peaceful house, a loving father, a giving person, a person who, after the war, when when he had a son that was 14, 15, that didn't survive, and there were a bunch of 14, 15-year-old boys that did survive, and he had a hard time looking at them. But it's hard. What happened to these kids? What happened When you were young, they put you in an orphanage. Right. When you were 17, 18, they would try to send you to the fugitives that were Someone established. on your own, right? If you were 14, 15, you were completely on your own. Right. They couldn't control you. And these boys had formed a gang. And they formed this gang, and my father watched them. And they were stealing and robbing to survive, not... Mm-hmm. But as, as the... And my father never told us a story, but... Uh, well, he's not a young man either anymore. He's about 87, 88... Mr. Friedman told me the story. He says, what your father saw, what we were up to, and he knew it was no good. 
So he took us, four of us, into his house. Don't think he had some sort of a mansion. <laughs> and he sent us on our way. So he was a loving and giving person, but he never spoke to us. But my mother, when the uh, Eichmann trials happened, right. she sat there watching him all day long. She Every sat, night there was an hour special or something that, right, that aired, was, right? And I would come home from Yeshiva, and I would sit next to her, and she would uh, actually feed me at the, at the TV because she was not walking away. And she started to see what Eichmann said following orders, it wasn't so much, we didn't kill, we didn't this. And she says, they didn't. They didn't. And that's when she started to open up. And she never I mean, this is the early 1960s. 1961. And she never stopped talking, but not in a way that, look what I went through. Right. In a way, we must remember. Right. Know what happened. You must know what happened, and you must give it over. It's not something that's going to start now and end now. You need to know she was never negative. How'd your parents meet? Uh, after the war, my uh, mother was in a in one DP camp in Germany, and my father was another one. And somebody came by, and my father decided it was time to get remarried, which is an extraordinary yeah, thing. Yeah, boy. Who could even think of that? And somebody came through the camp, and he said, uh, do you know anybody that would take me? I had five children. Not everybody wants to marry somebody with children. And he says, you know what, there's, uh, there's four Zichman girls. One is married. One is already older. She's 20. By this time, she was already 30. Maybe uh, maybe she would take you. She's already an older girl. Same problem then as they have today. <laughs> <laughs> Under different circumstances. So my father said, uh, maybe go make the shit up for me. He says, I'm going to Palestine. You have to go yourself. And my father went to the other DP camp, and he met with the president of the DP camp, who happened to be very, very close to my uncle, and he made the shidduch. How soon after was the wedding? Uh, after they met. They, they didn't, uh, was the wedding in the DP camp? Yes, in the DP camps, and two of my brothers were born in the DP camps. Wow. Leon Goldenberg is here. Uh, my, the other thing is, and one of the reasons I asked you to be here this morning, because I think it's so vital um, we continue, it's now 2017, and we as a community, and I know there are plenty of problems in our community worldwide, obviously, including financial problems, but we as a community continue to live in relative luxury, to say the least. And that luxury, I mean, someone said the other day, uh, I was listening to a lecture and they said, you know, the poorest person in America has an iPhone, you know, like, right. you know? <laughs> so we, we are at a different level. <laughs> I think there are 200 Pesach programs. Right. That gives you an idea. A lot of pay someone, someone said to me when we're in Israel, someone says to me, I wonder if more meat is being consumed by the Pesach programs around the world or by everybody in the state of Israel over Pesach? I said, you know, that's actually an interesting question. It could be, it could be very close. Anyway, I say this because as we find it not only impossible to believe, every generation finds it impossible to believe or every person of every age finds it hard to believe. Uh, but the, the, but, but all of this, all of these types of stories, episodes, things that your mother told you, you know, every day as you watch the Eichmann trial, um, it, it becomes further and further away, and people can't even really. How is it possible? Can we even imagine a police force that would cooperate in throwing us out of our homes? Can we even imagine that we have seconds to decide if we're ever going to see our children again or not? It's mind-boggling, and because it's so mind-boggling, people can't. We cannot relate to it at all. 
we there's clearly it's very difficult to relate. It really is, and that's why it's important for the second generation, which I am, who heard the stories firsthand. And it's very nice listening to the tapes, but you don't get the same inflection from the tapes always that you do from from having heard the stories. Right. And that's why it's critical that the second generation takes up and recognizes that it's now our turn. I mean, my cousin's from the youngest. She's 90 years old. She's going to Poland. She was in Poland with a student group before uh, Pesach. I mean, hopefully she can do it for another 30 years. And she said, as long as I can do it, yeah, she's going six, seven times a year with different groups to Poland. Wow. She's an incredible woman. But she's 90 years old. So the groups try to take a survivor with them. They try to take a survivor, and she's always willing. And when she went, she went to Germany. Uh, she was asked to speak in Germany. And uh, when she was there, the woman said to her, oh, by the way, there's a Jewish day school. Can you speak there? She said, speak in front of a Jewish day school? Of in course. In Germany. In Germany. And so she went for two days to Germany, and she's, you know, and she's 90 years old, and she's tired. No. Nope. They want to hear, I'm going to speak. And she went, and she's actually fluent in, uh, she's not German, but she's fluent in German. She's fluent in Hungarian, English, uh, and Yiddish, and who knows what else. Right. So she spoke in front of a German group in German, and it was just, uh, you know, she's just an incredible person. But the fact is, it's now our responsibility as a second generation especially for those that have heard the stories. There are people that grew up in homes where it was completely verboten. You didn't speak about it. But if you heard the stories and you know the stories, you have to give them over. And for those grandchildren and great-grandchildren that still have grandparents and great-grandparents, it's your responsibility to sit with them and to hear. They want to give it over. Was every one of them, no matter what, no matter when they started to speak about it. Some of them didn't start till in their eighties. They want you to know what they went through, and they want you to know why they remained religious Jews, and they want you to know how important it is that you don't forget. So I say to the grandchildren and to the great grandchildren, you have the opportunity, you have the last embers of life in these people, the youngest one. 86, she's probably mm -hmm. one of the youngest survivors that, that went through Auschwitz. She was Polish. She was four years in Auschwitz. She came to Auschwitz at 11. You need to talk to them. She's 86. You need to hear from them. There are very few Polish survivors. They couldn't last that long. But there still are Hungarian survivors. Talk to them. Listen to them. They want you to understand. They want you to understand how they survived what they went through, what they lost, as my uh, cousin told me, um, when she went to Germany, she said, uh, they asked her, do you ha uh, was it a tape, whatever it was, mm -hmm. do you have questions? She says, yes, I have questions. My uncle, who I have to be named after, had 11 children, 60 members of his family. Not one person survived. I think that's why my father felt he was a rabbi in the town, that it was important to name after him. Not one single child, daughter-in-law, son-in-law, grandchild, completely wiped out. They want you to know about these people. They want you to give those names in, and it's important to give all the names in. So that, and there's no question, it's more than six million. 
because they already have over four million names. How many Jews were taken out and just shot down? Where they took with no records. Towns with no records. Leon Goldenberg is here. It's Yom HaShoah Vahagvurah. Today's the day to remember. Every day is the day to remember, but you know what I mean. Uh, set aside by the state of Israel as the official day of remembrance for the uh, Holocaust. Um, one of the things we do when we play our recordings is we get an opportunity to hear about life before the war. As your mother was preparing for Pesach, would she tell you what life was like preparing for Pesach before the war? Well, my mother was actually born at the Seder. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, they sat down to the Seder. They were uh, three older siblings. And my grandmother said to my grandfather, go reef the shuchenta, call the neighbor. <laughs> she went into the bedroom. And believe it or not, two hours later, she came out and she said to my grandfather, let's finish the Seder. <laughs> Different time. Now, the only thing that my mother could never tell me or my aunt is that my grandmother have to serve. <laughs> <laughs> That's unclear, huh? That's unclear. But... They were four older sisters, and my grandmother trained them all to be balbusters, to be cooks, take care of a house and everything. And every week, another one of the sisters was given the job to cook for the house under the tutelage of my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And my, so I said, oh, so then the rest of you uh, sat out in the sun. He said, no. The rest of us were sent out to people that... There was no wife. Sometimes it was a shave brachas. They would go out to cook for people. There were always other people, dysfunctional families that, that were, that needed somebody to go in. What city were they in? Kirahaz. In Hungary. It's, it's, it's technically not Hungary. Um, it's what, you know, uh, euphemistically called the border. Mm -hmm. um, the ever-changing border. The ever-changing border. Um, it was Hungary when she was born. And then it became Czechoslovakia, and then it became Hungary again, then it became the Soviet You've Union. You've been there or not? I've been there, yeah. yeah. I had, uh, I'm, in one way, I was lucky. I had three grandparents that had Kurus Yisrael. Mm -hmm. um, and only that grandmother that went to Auschwitz died there. Uh, but I only have one grave left. My uh, father's father, who passed away in 1927, so his, uh, his grave is intact. And his mother passed away uh, in Kislev of 43. He actually had a daughter named after her. And, but there was no money for Imatseva. So we don't know exactly where she is, but we do know that she was buried. And my mother's father, they had killed one of my uncles when they told him. He had a bad heart, and he passed away. And they did put up Imatseva next to four grandparents. Mm. I had uh, four generations of grandparents buried right next to the other. Actually, his, uh, my my grandmother's parents. Right. But that was his uncle, and but it's completely destroyed. I found the stones um, in houses, in foundations, in gardens. They completely destroyed that cemetery. What is it? Uh, what goes through your mind now? You mentioned your your aunt's opportunity to speak in Germany. What goes through your mind now when you see the what they call the revitalization of Jewish life in places like Germany and Eastern Europe? I think I just see the hand of, of God, Yad Elohim. At the end of the day, how can you imagine? But if you look at German history, 
and there were Dalim hundreds and hundreds of years ago that said that uh, I forget who was one of the great Gedalim. I don't want to say because I don't remember his mm. name for sure. Who said that if you think that the blood of Ger that the land of Germany is soaked in Jewish blood now, wait. This he said hundreds of years ago. But if you look at German history, you see that Nuremberg and in different cities we were uh, constantly every. 10, 15, 20 years we were being expelled. What do you mean? How can you be expelled from the same town every 20 years? Mm -hmm. Because the Jews came back. They had no choice. So it, it really is... Look, look, look at what we have here today in America. 50 years ago, 75 years ago, Orthodox Jewry was going to disappear. Orthodox rabbis were sending their children, including my cousin, to the JTS. Right. Because the only way to remain Orthodox in America was to uh, to go to JTS because conservative temples then demanded the rabbi be Orthodox. We were going to disappear. Now we have 100,000 kids in yeshivas in New York City alone. So there's no question that we, we you know, I haven't gone to Germany yet except to fly through. Right. Uh, but I think at this point I'm ready. I'm ready to go to Germany and see Jewish life blossoming in places that are just unimaginable. Was your mother in more than one concentration camp? Or? No. She uh, came. My father was multiple places, but not sure exactly. I have the names written now, but that's about it. But my mother came to Auschwitz on the second day of, of uh, Schuss. They were there for three, four months, and then they were sent to Germany to work in uh, Siemens. So she only got liberated um, in in late April, beginning of May. Mm -hmm. uh, she was still working there. Around this time of year? Around this time of year is when she was liberated. Uh, people think that everybody got liberated in, in January, right. but uh, the ones that were sent out got liberated very late. But compared to the Polish Jews, that was only uh, not even a year. Right. And it was hell. And my, as my cousin said uh, this week when I was by her, I was, went to see her shop. She says, it's hard to, for us to understand with the Polish Jews that, that there are any alive. How did they survive? How did they survive? What they went through. Right. Um, Leon Goldenberg is here. It's Yama Shoah Vahagvura. Today's a day to remember. And um, now, now we could point to... Thank God. Children and grandchildren and generations that continue to thrive and survive. I remember a, uh, and I'm sure you can relate to this, I'm sure, because uh, I'm sure you had the, a, 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 it was a common experience for people uh, around that time. Um, it, it was very strange for Jewish children in yeshivas in the 1940s and 50s in the United States to have grandparents. It was a very strange thing. In fact, someone told me, that they were the they because they had grandparents they were the aberration they had people in their class who didn't realize you could have a right. grandparent and I'm sure you had went through the uh, same thing. I went through the same thing. Uh, not only that, uh, we were I only knew two people that had a grandparent. Right. One, each one had one. Right. One was a cousin who had a grandparent. It was something that we didn't even we thought it. You know, when we were young, they just got to a certain age. When I was in second grade, I got friendly with a little boy. And I was a little boy, too. <laughs> and his mother came to, um, you know, help with lunch. So afterwards, he introduced me to his mother, and she was fluent in English. And after she walked away, I said, where did your mother learn to speak English? 
He says, my mother, she's, she was, went to school here. She was born here. I said, a mommy born in America? No such thing. She says, and my grandparents were born here. I said, grandparents? You met your grandparents? I couldn't understand. He said, yeah, my grandparents, yeah. That, that, that. He had grandparents. The exception. It was, you know, he was an American kid, yeah. an American family. There was nobody I knew that had grandparents. Didn't exist. Unbelievable. Today, there are, t there are times when you will see four, and sometimes I think even five, my, generations at a simcha. My mother-in-law has uh, about a dozen great-great-grandchildren. Unbelievable. And she's just turning 90. Incredible. So it's not just financial luxury we're in. We're also in this, thank God, this incredible familial luxury where we have people around us and generations who continue to sprout up uh, in front of us, which, again, the generation of the Shoah certainly, but even others, never experienced. Well, part of it, and that's one of the things that my mother once told me, she had a um, colon cancer operation uh, when she was, she had it twice at 80 and 85. And one time she called me in and she said to me, you know, I, I, it's a very good chance I won't survive the operation. Forget about the cancer. Right. <laughs> I want you to know, I have no tinnitus under Rabbi I have no complaints to God. And I was flabbergasted. You lost your mother. You really lost your father. You lost three brothers. You lost a sister. You lost every single aunt and uncle. How can't you have tinnitus? And she said, it's 50 years since the war. In the Altaheim, in the old country, that was an old person. God gave me a second life. Except for your father passing away, it's been a very good life. The first life, I have questions. This has been a very good life. No tinnitus. No tinnitus. Unbelievable. Incredible, basic, Amuna Pshuta that we can't, we can't, we can't, we certainly, I certainly don't have it. Our own circumstances don't allow us to relate to this at all. But it's important to remember and to remind people, to remind ourselves, and a day like today is the perfect time to do so. Uh, Leon Goldenberg, I thank you. I thank you very much. Helping us remember on this Yom HaShoah. Reminding everybody. Because you speak, and this is why I thought that you're the perfect guest and I was proven right. You speak to every aspect of the Jewish world. You speak to, to people who are, you know, the very observant community, to those who are not affiliated. Every single person on that, uh, on that spectrum must make sure to remember and pass this message along to the next generation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. And thank you for remembering. Yom HaShoah 5777. It is Holocaust Remembrance Day. You're listening to JM in the AM.